Mark chapter 9. Let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll jump into the Word of God tonight. Father, thank you so much for your Word, and, and God, thank you for your Son. Thank you, God, that He is compassionate, that He leads us and teaches us and instructs us. Thank you that He was so clear about what your kingdom looks like. That, God, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to make it up on our own. We for sure do not have to emulate the way the world does things. And so we pray, God, that tonight our ears would not only be inclined to what your Spirit has to say to us, but we pray that our lives would be sincerely and radically changed. God, we know tonight there may be areas of our lives that we don't even realize need a touch of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray tonight that as you always so faithfully do, that you would sovereignly and divinely just cause the word that we need to hit the mark, God, to hit the target, and that as we leave this place applying your word and being faithful to be obedient, we would be more like our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you guys, have you ever had a day where you've just gotten it all wrong? Like just, just gotten it all wrong. Like you get to the end of the day and it's, you, you know, you kind of feel like it would have been better if I just stayed in bed. And, and I don't mean like got it wrong in the sense of, you know, it was just you had sinister, evil, wicked intentions and you just went out and did whatever you wanted to do. Um, I hope you didn't have a day like that today. I'm talking about those days where it's just like, man, you say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, you think the wrong thing, you finish a time with somebody, and you walk away, and you think, man, I did not even represent Christ the right, the right way at all, and, and if you've ever had one of those days, I'm saying to you uh, tonight that this was one of those days for the disciples, this was, and you'll see tonight as we survey the rest of chapter 9, this was really what had happened on this particular day for the disciples. I think sometimes we have this, and you guys are students of the Word of God, so of course you know not to think this, but sometimes we do think, man, disciples who turned into apostles, who were faithful to plant churches, they must have just been absolutely perfect in every way. And the truth is, you know, hate to burst your bubble tonight, but they weren't. You know, they were a work in progress. They had moments when they just didn't understand. There, there were times, we'll see tonight, when they were afraid to ask questions. Um, there were things that they got wrong about the way the, the kingdom operated. And what we're going to see tonight is just the compassionate, loving work of their master, guiding them along to help them understand how the kingdom really works. Now, when I was thinking about this, like initially, what I was thinking uh, was he was really laying out ministry philosophy for them, which, which was true, right? I mean, these guys are they're, they're laying the foundation for the church. They're going to be the key leaders in the church. And, you know, they were going to get some things wrong that needed to be corrected. And so, you know, Jesus was really um, aligning their ministry philosophy. And while that's true... I think the phrase ministry philosophy just falls short because it doesn't really matter who is doing the ministering. If you are ministering on behalf of Jesus, we're talking about kingdom work. 
We're talking about kingdom philosophy. Like we're talking about a way of operating that for sure transcends our denomination, our organization, our non-denomination organization, our nonprofit organization, whatever it may be. Like I think, you know, for sure there are freedoms that we have to have various ways of doing the ministry, but there are also non-negotiables, total non-negotiables for every church and for every Christian uh, across time itself. And so that's what we're going to see Jesus lay out to his disciples. It starts in verse 30, and it's a reiteration of his suffering. And so the Bible says in verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And then, you know, Mark says, but they did not understand the saying and, and were afraid to ask him. So probably, like, remember, we're just about to get into the, the, the Passion Week of Christ. And so this is the last time that he's going to be in the area of the Galilee uh, before he goes down to Jerusalem with his disciples, ultimately to be crucified like he's talking about here. He was probably at Caesarea Philippi, and they were walking through Capernaum, you know, which, of course, you guys know was the headquarters of his ministry. It was really, you know, it was really ground zero for him. He is, I'm not saying that he didn't like to spend time in Jerusalem, but he was much more at home among the blue-collar folk, not the religious elite. And so this was really where he headquartered his ministry. And so he's making his way through, but he wanted to do it in a discreet way because, again, he's preparing his disciples. Like, they're in for something. In other words, they're in for something that they for sure did not expect. And he adds a twist. So if you go through and you look at every time Jesus talks about being uh, crucified or suffering at the hands of the religious leadership... Um, and then rising again from the dead. You'll notice in each of the three different times, if you take a, uh, if you synthesize the gospel accounts, there are three different times he says this to his disciples, and all of them have some variation. Like there's a new thing that he adds to each time that he instructs his disi disciples about what's going to happen to him. And the new thing this time is betrayal. The new thing this time is betrayal. So the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This was a new thing they hadn't heard before. The Greek word is paradidomai. It means to hand over. And, and obviously, well, maybe not obviously, there's two views on this. Some say this paradidomai, this handing over, this delivering to, was really about the Father delivering the Son to be crucified, Romans chapter 8, we know that that's what the scripture says. On the other hand, there are those who think, no, he's talking about the, the betrayal, the betrayer who was among his disciples. Now, um, you don't have to make a denomination over, you know, which side you fall on, but I will say personally, I think he's probably giving them an idea that even amongst themselves, there's somebody who's going to ultimately betray him, someone who's going to hand him over. And of course, we know that that individual was Judas. Um, all of this for them was super confusing because as I've said many times, and I'm not going to like labor this point, uh, they had a different expectation. You know, they were expecting the Messiah to come and to bring a, a new exodus, right? In their minds, 
They were thinking a, a new exodus like the Israelites had had in the past when they were living in Egypt and un, they were under the bondage of Pharaoh. I, I shared this with you last week. And then Mo, God raised up Moses who was a redeemer and Moses came and the seas were parted and, and the people were given a land to inherit and so this was the mindset that the Jew in Jesus' day had of the Messiah. There was going to be this glorious redemption from Rome, you know, which had really subjugated in a very harsh way the people of God. And then there would be this redemption from this, you know, tyrannical leader, not Pharaoh, but Caesar. And then there would be this golden age that would be ushered in that was spoken by so many of the prophets, in particular the minor prophets. And so every time Jesus says something about his suffering, like, you know, if, if it was like a, you know, those, those comic bubbles, when you read a comic, there's those thought bubbles over people's heads. If the disciples had thought bubbles over their heads, it would just be question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. This does not compute. This is not what the rabbis have taught. This is not what we've grown up expecting as mom and dad have, you know, built within us, within our spiritual DNA, in anticipation for the Messiah, like, does not compute. The data goes in, and they just don't understand. And, and you know, Mark says it here, they did not understand, and yet they didn't ask him a question because they were afraid. They were afraid. I don't know um, how it worked for you guys in school. If you were the person that always was asking the questions and providing the answer, yeah, raise your hand if that was you, because I hate you. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I, I don't. I love you. God bless you. I'm the, I'm the person who doesn't raise the hand, who really doesn't say much, and just kind of watches everything play out. And you know, the disciples, I mean, you're talking Jesus, right? He, they know that they're loved. They know that they're cared for. It's not that he was unapproachable. I mean, he had really done everything that he could to create an, an, an atmosphere of approachability, and yet even in this moment, they just, they just were afraid to ask him any questions. They may have been afraid to ask because they didn't want to hear the answer. You know, sometimes it's like that in prayer with the Lord, isn't it? You're like going through something, or you know something's coming, and you just don't have a great feeling about it, but in prayer, instead of asking the Lord, you're like, maybe if I don't ask a question, this situation will just go away. And um, it's always better to ask the question, I think. So the Bible says in verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and, he, when he was, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. So, so, you know, I mean, here you are, shining examples of perfect discipleship. You know, this is the, this is the A team. This is first string, first string foundational individuals that the church is going to be built upon ultimately, he's in his final moments, he's really just disclosed the difficulty of what's coming in his own future. And you know, what are the disciples talking about? They're arguing. I mean, they're not just having a, a nice conversation about this. They are intensely debating with one another. The word to dispute means a prolonged, heated argument. They were having a prolonged, heated argument. Like, what did that look like? 
uh, as they were walking along the road. And of course, you know, they thought that they were doing it in a secretive way so that the master didn't hear. But the thing is this, he hears everything, right? He hears everything. Oh, no, seriously, he hears your thoughts. If all of your thoughts that you had in your mind were played out on the video screen right now today, right? If it was like, oh, hey, listen, you know, it's, it's Daniel's turn, and we're going to see what Daniel was thinking today, and it's, it's up on the screen, you know? I think a lot of us would be like, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think my kids need me in the kids' ministry, and, and you don't even have kids, all right? You don't have kids. It's just like exit as quick as you possibly can. And I think this probably was one of those moments where, you know, the, the, the proverbial sheet was pulled back. And, you know, what they, were, what they were engaged in was important enough for Jesus not to let go. And there are times, right? There are times where you know he gives us space. He gives us space to deal with our stuff. He doesn't always, like, launch right into the correction and the adjustment. It, the Bible says that it's the forbearance of God that draws us to repentance. What does that mean? That means he, he, he's not always quick to levy the justice upon us and to immediately correct us. No, he gives time and space. It's his kindness, right? It's his kindness. Sometimes we misconstrue his kindness for advocacy because he doesn't step in. Sometimes we think, hey, well, you know what? He's not stepping in on this, so I'm just going to continue in this behavior. And then, of course, you know, the Bible says that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and rebukes. And so, therefore, be zealous and repent. But, but don't misconstrue the forbearance of God for an advocacy for those things that you're doing that aren't right. This particular issue needed to be nipped in the bud. And so... So he says to them, and you know, like if you've ever been caught doing something you shouldn't do, of course, their hearts started beating, their hands started sweating, they started looking to each other, I'm sure, in a way of casting the blame, and what he got from them was silence. You know, no one said anything. I mean, it was just you for sure could hear a pin drop, because I'm sure that they were embarrassed. I'm sure there was that sense of shame, right? They, they, they were busted. Here he's just been sincere and honest about one of the hardest things he would ever have to deal with. And what are they thinking about? Well, who's going to be first? Well, who's going to be second? Who's going to be, who's going to, who's going to be chief? Who's going to be bossing everyone around? Who's going to have the authority? Who's going to have the power, right? Because there was an attitude of competition and pride among the disciples. And they had their own agendas, and you know, for sure, there's maybe nothing uglier than we as the people of God are bringing that competitive, prideful, agenda-driven attitude into God's kingdom. In fact, it is the very opposite of what Christ wants for his people. Uh, it is the opposite, but sometimes you know it's difficult for us because we, by nature, oftentimes are taking our cues from the world, and this is precisely how the world operates. We just pull the philosophy of the world into the church, and we think that it's the way we're supposed to do things because it's the way the world does things. I don't think that this was totally outside of 
of the, the realm of Judaism either because you know when you look at the religious leadership, this was how the religious leadership in the day of Jesus operated. And then, you know, maybe on top of that, maybe there was some frustration among the disciples because, you know, while nine of them were struggling in the valley with this young boy who was severely demon-possessed, the other three were up on top of the mountain having this amazing time with the Lord. And, and you know it's possible that that mountaintop experience that Christ had given three of them had unfortunately been met with envy and jealousy by the other nine. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the way it worked, but it is definitely a possibility. And I think you know sometimes that I'm, I've said all this so far, and I don't think you disagree with me, but the truth is this. Sometimes you know because we have that competitive, prideful, agenda-driven heart or the seeds of that within our heart, sometimes when God blesses other people, we can't even be happy for them. We can't even be blessed when someone else gets blessed. We can't be blessed when someone is on top of the mountain and we're down in the valley. We can't be blessed when, when someone's ministry is flourishing and God is anointing the preaching or God is anointing the service and children's ministry or God is anointing the evangelism that somebody else is being powerfully used by God and we look at what, what God is doing in our lives and somehow it doesn't meet an expectation and so it, instead, you know, because we're self-centered, agenda-driven people, instead of realizing that it doesn't necessarily matter about fulfilling our agenda, it, it, it matters, what matters is fulfilling God's agenda in God's kingdom, right, in, 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 in the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't matter, you know, if we're having a sense of self-satisfaction with what we're doing as long as Christ is being magnified. Instead of that attitude, we, we can sometimes slip into a bitterness Right? We, can, we can covet what God has given somebody else. And then Ephesians tells us that, that envy is connected to covetousness. And so what happens is we start to look at what somebody else has. We look at someone else's marriage. We look at somebody else's money. We look at somebody else's advancement. And we want what they have. And pretty soon as those seeds are festering within our hearts, we now have a, a jealous envy against that person where we're bitter. You know, not only do we want what they have, but we hate them because they have it. We despise them because we have it. You know, we dislike people, and we don't even necessarily know why, and the reality is it can all be tied to a root of bitterness that fundamentally is founded in our own covetousness. So, chew on that for a little bit, all right? Hey, it's a bad place to be. It's a bad place to be. This is what he says. He sets them straight. The Bible says in verse 35, and he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone, here's your, here's your principle, here's your philosophy, here's the way the kingdom of heaven works, let's set this right because you guys are operating upside down right now. Your plane is flying upside down. Dallas Willard, thank you for that illustration. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
So, so this is a big deal. He sits down. Now, remember, the position of a teacher during Jesus' day was to sit while those who listened would stand. And I think we're going to do that one of these days. We're going to flip the script, and we're going to have you guys stand for 45 minutes while I sit and teach. But, but this is what he does. Everyone knows, right? It's, hey, it's lesson time, teachable moment. He sits down, he takes the position of the teacher, and then he lays out the principle for them to learn. Now, this is, I'm so grateful, right, because I am sure they didn't necessarily know what to expect. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he set a pattern. They know how he handles people, and so there could have been an expectation that was settled, but you know, they absolutely could have expected to, to, to be leveled here. You know, kind of like something like this. Are you kidding me? Like, are you guys kidding me? I just talked about being crucified. And I talked about a betrayer handing me over. And I've told you that the religious leaders, uh, I w- I'm going to suffer at their hands. And right now, like, you guys are so self-centered. The only thing you can think about is yourself. Like, come on. Could I have picked a bigger group of losers than you? right? And then not just that, hey, I had all these plans. I had all these plans. You guys had your chance. And so now because you're so messed up and things are so totally sideways and you just don't get it, I mean, you've been hanging with me for three years and you still don't get it. It looks like I'm going to have to start over. You know, I need a new group of people. You had your opportunity and, you know, three strikes and there's been more than three strikes. You guys are out. I'm starting all over again. And, you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He does not treat people the way that we often treat people, right? I mean, we can be so quick, so quick on the trigger to administer justice to others when we ourselves are pleading and begging for the grace of God. And what they don't get is they don't get condemnation. They don't get disqualification. They get the grace and they get the mercy and they get a teaching opportunity he, he sits down, and not only does he give them the principle, then he supplies, he supplies like a living illustration for it as well. Aren't you thankful that he is so tender with you, the tender mercies and the kindnesses of God? Like you had maybe a bad day. Maybe you did get it all wrong today. Maybe you got a good portion of your day wrong today. Maybe you did handle somebody the way that you shouldn't have handled somebody But, you know, when you come to him, this is what he does. He gently and lovingly instructs you, especially if your heart is desiring to receive it, right? You come in that contrition and that brokenness, and you know what? A smoking flax, he will not quench, and a bruised reed, he will not break. He knows how to take you tenderly into his hands, and to get you moving in the right direction again. And I just want to tell you tonight, he never stops doing that. doesn't matter how long you walk with God, right? You might, be, you might be 30 years into your relationship with the Lord. You might be 50, 60, 70 years old. You still need the tender love of Christ, you know, moving you in the right direction. And you know it's true. Like, if, does he do this? Let me just stop for a second. Is this how he treats you? Is this how he handles you? Wow, that's a big no. Stephen, thank you. We got one. Stephen, the only one that Jesus is gentle to in this room is 
Stephen right here in the front. Anybody else? Anybody else? Has he been gentle, kind, right? I mean, you've, you've, you've blown it a couple times, haven't you? And you're like, yeah, well, you know what, Pastor? You've blown it too. Yeah, you're right. I have. You're right, and I do. You know, I need, in fact, you know, the way that Paul begins his epistles it, it, it changes when he's writing to people who are pastors. Normally, it's grace and peace. With pastors, it's grace, peace, and mercy. Not just because pastors need to be extra merciful, but because pastors need extra mercy, extra mercy from God. You know, because we can, we do have a tendency to get ourselves in trouble, and there's nothing more important than handling the people of God the right way, which is exactly what he's going to go into in, in this illustration. So he doesn't condemn them. Um, he lays out this principle, and it's kind of like, this is the way I hear it anyway. Hey, listen, guys, guys, listen to me, all right? You've got it totally wrong. The, the truth is this, in the kingdom of heaven, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all. And he shall be the servant of all. And so if you're thinking about you excelling and exceeding above everybody else, the truth is this. The person who really is exceeding and excelling is the one who is on the bottom, not the one who is on the top. The world system operates like a, a pyramid, right? And so you've got the select few, the ultra gifted, the powerful, and the people who wield the authority sitting at the top. And in Judaism, this was the way that it rolled. And he says, flip that, flip that picture upside down. And those of you who want to be in a position of power and authority, this is the deal. You will be everyone's servant. In the world, greatness is how many people serve you. In God's kingdom, greatness is how many people you serve. And this was what you said. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So just in order for them to get it, he's in a house. A lot of scholars think this is Peter's house. And so it's a family setting. It might be, this is total speculation, but it might be one of Peter's kids and he takes a little child, we don't necessarily know how old this child was, and he takes him up in his arms. And just by the way, this would have been something that the great teachers in Israel would never have done. They would have never done this. Because a child in that culture, in that time, in the Greco-Roman world and also in the Jewish world, had no standing whatsoever. In some ways, wasn't even considered a person until they hit that point in time of adulthood. That's when they would be recognized. But before that point in time, it was like, you, are, you live silently and you live in, in an unheard way. And so for him to take this little child up in his arms was something a great teacher would never do. And it for sure was a, a picture of how they were called to serve those who were least of all. And, and really, this is what he's expressing. It matters how you treat each other. It matters how you treat each other. It matters how you treat those who are vulnerable among you. It matters how you treat those who are the least respected among the disciples. It matters how you treat those who don't have standing, who don't have influence, who don't have the social media following, because you guys know celebrityism, unfortunately, is alive and well in the church today. 
And, and, and much like the world, we can have our own little system of hierarchies of value, business owners, people with a social media following, people who, like from a spiritual perspective, have position and authority and prominence in a church, and we start to think like that, right? People who are well-liked, um, people that you would like to associate with because they bring some value to the table. Even in the church, we can find ourselves creating these hierarchy values. And the statement that Christ makes here is that does not exist in the church. There's no place for that in the church. In fact, what you ought to be doing as leaders in the church or as disciples in the church, you ought to be identifying those who are considered by the world to be on the bottom and you ought to be treating them gently and lovingly. You should be accepting them and you should be taking them in. And that really was the picture that Christ was setting as he pulled this little child into his arms. Undeniably, uh, in front of them, something I'm sure stuck with them forever. So he deals with this issue of anti-egalitarianism. Egalitarianism simply means the equality of people, and there was within the hearts of the disciples at this point in time uh, an attitude that did not give all people equal value. Not to drive this too far into the ground, but as we look at our culture today, we see the, the effects of people not giving equal value to people I mean, whether this is a socioeconomic thing, whether this is a race thing, whether this is uh, an issue of where you fall on the political divide, as Christians, we bring a different perspective because our framework for, for people is built on two things. Number one, we're all made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. Doesn't matter what your skin color is, we rejoice in the diversities of ethnicities. It's beautiful in the eyes of God, and we celebrate that. But we all have same value, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of where we were raised, regardless of our nationality, regardless, like I said, of our socioeconomic standing, regardless of the political spectrum and where we might fall on it. We're made in God's image, number one. And we know that all people are loved by God because of the cross of Christ. Like we see people not through some worldly lens, but we see people through the lens of the cross. And if Jesus died for everyone, then the way that I perceive people and the way that I love people is, is built off of not my preconceived positions or ideas or the person I love to listen to on the podcast, but it's built on what Jesus did on the cross for every individual, for every single human being. And I'm just saying, like, if that's our framework, you know because of that we bring something unique and distinct and different to this world, and we know that because of this anti-egalitarian attitude, there's just so much chaos in our society today. That wasn't the only issue that they had. They had sectarianism in themselves as well. And so verse 38, John pipes up and he says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is what? 
For, yeah, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So uh, we're going to have a water stand set up at Beyond Coffee tonight, and you guys can, like, you guys can send it forward. The, the second problem here in the disciples, listen, there's a, there's a big issue, right? Because he's about to be crucified, resurrected, and ascending to the right hand of the Father, and the boys need to have the right way of thinking about the kingdom. So we're talking, number one, viewing people the right way. We're talking, number two, an attitude of sectarianism, an attitude of sectarianism. Sectarianism simply means that we set people into groups and we set our group above everybody else. That's what sectarianism is. And, and this was obviously evident because John's like, and I don't know, there are some people who think that John was saying this to Jesus as a way of saying, hey, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but we're still kind of doing the right thing, and, and this was what we did, and it kind of proves that we're in, in, in the right path. Some people say, no, you know, John uh, knew they were not necessarily doing the right thing, and so he kind of laid this out as a confession. Other people say, John just didn't know what to say, so he said something when he should have said nothing, which obviously we talked about this last week. Sometimes the wise thing is to say nothing, but he lays it out, and he's like, hey, you know, there was this situation, this guy's casting out a demon in your name, and you know, this was what we did. We tried to stop him because, you know, he's not with us. He's not following us. He doesn't have the badge. You know, when we were passing out badges for the 70, this dude was not there, and so, you know, he's just this rogue exorcist. That's casting out demons in your name, and he's not approved by us. And so, you know, the disciples found themselves in a place where they were, in a self-appointed way, policing other people. In a self-appointed way, they were policing other people. And probably what they expected was Christ to affirm this, not to correct them for it. But it's evident what was happening in the hearts of the disciples was already this attitude of exclusivity, Right, It's our group. Uh, we are the ones who are in the position of policing other people. We're the ones who are going to determine whether somebody can be considered part of us or not a part of us. Uh, we're going to be the ones who determine whether someone can use Jesus' name or not use Jesus' name. And Jesus just stops it all. And he says, no, don't stop that guy, number one. Don't stop that guy. Your responsibility, I never appointed you to, to police all the things that the Spirit is doing, and so you're actually in the wrong place to be policing people who are actually being used by me. And that's the second thing that he says here. They, this particular individual specifically, was doing a mighty work. So not only are they not called to be the, the police, but they needed to be reminded that the movement of God was far bigger than they could have imagined. And Jesus lays out the principle, whoever is for us is not against us. I mean, evidently, the power of the name of Christ was being demonstrated in this moment. It wasn't heresy. They weren't perverting the person of Christ. And so he's like, why are you putting yourself in a position where now you seem to be the individual that is putting your imprimatur on whether or not the Spirit of God is moving? And the third thing is, is this, it was evidently a legitimate work. And so as the disciples are stepping into this opportunity to be leaders 
uh, of the early church, there are three principles that they were taught. I think there are three principles important for us. Number one, we have not been called to police what God can do and what God can't do. We've not been called to be the ones who criticize people. We're not for sure called to, to have this attitude where it's like, well, we do it the right way and our philosophy of ministry is perfect. And, and if you're not doing it exactly the way that we are doing it, then you, you probably shouldn't be doing it at all. You know, we shouldn't be in a place where we have brought this myopic view of what God is able to do and constricted it or con consider it to be really, really, really narrow. You know, when you start adding things to the cross of Christ, when you start adding your philosophies of ministries, uh, when you start putting yourself in a position where you are the one sitting at the top determining whether or not people are really being used by God or not, let me just tell you, you are in a really bad place. And a lot of people today, you know, a lot of Christians, they use their social media as the platform to kind of share their criticisms of churches or of organizations that are doing God's work or of individuals. Now listen, I'm not saying today that there's not a place for us to really address the issues of heresy. You know, when someone's denying the ba basics of orthodox Christianity, but 98% of our criticisms have nothing to do with that. They normally are oriented around our preferences. They normally are oriented around us taking our philosophy of ministry and, and somehow having the view that our philosophy of ministry is the only way that ministry should be done. And then in addition to that, we have not been called to determine whether or not someone is really being used by the Spirit of God or not. Look, I'll just tell you right now, I don't want to put myself in that place. I don't want to put myself in that place. Some people say to me, hey, pastor, you know what? Why don't you, why don't you address this church who's doing this from the pulpit? Or why don't you address this church that's doing this from the pulpit? And I'm like, I've got enough responsibility just making sure this church does things the right way and that we're honoring God. And then, then to use the pulpit as a place to diminish another brother or sister or organization or church who is seeking to serve God with all of their hearts. Yeah, but you know what? Their philosophy of ministry doesn't line up with our philosophy of ministry. They teach topically. Well, may God bless them. May the Lord bless them as they teach and preach the word of God topically. Well, you know what? Their focus of ministry is really narrow. Well, maybe that's what God's called them to. Like, why would we put ourselves in a position where we are the ones acting like God? You guys for sure get what I'm talking about. The church gets it wrong, and then we wonder why there's such a lack of God's spirit moving in cities across our nation. Because there's just so much territorialism. Because there's such an attitude of this is the only way that something can be done. And so instead of building bridges and bonds between churches, what we do is we isolate ourselves and we push other believers away instead of pulling them in so that we can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the city together. You know, I think about ways that God has blessed us to be able to do this. And of course, you know, I think about uh, LV Reach and, you know, we're in 89169 and we have a community center that's up and running and, you know, we're there supporting the Balm of Gilead, which is a church that is not a Calvary Chapel. Pastor Mike Hatch is not a Calvary Chapel pastor, but he is a brother who loves God with all of his heart. 
And it is a, a vibrant church that God has planted in one of the most difficult zip codes in the city of Las Vegas. And so what, what have we done? Well, we felt led by God to come alongside and support that ministry. We're not looking to, to build a church there. We're not looking to get people on Sunday into a bus and bring them over here to Awaken Las Vegas. We want to see that church grow. We want to see that church blessed. We want to see a pipeline of people poured into that ministry because they're doing kingdom work. And at the end of the day, when we stand before God, it's not going to be like God is saying, well, what did you guys do at Awaken Las Vegas? Because, you know, the, 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 all of the numerical criteria is how we're going to establish value in the eternal kingdom. If your church was really big, then you know you'll have a closer place You'll, have, you'll be in, in, the, in the front row, you know, in front of me and the Lamb in the center of heaven. That's just not the way, it's just not the way that it works. I think about CityServe, you know, when COVID went down. I know it sounds like a distant memory because we're on to the next, we're on to the next whatever. But, you know, when COVID went down, we, we partnered with Hope Church, and we partnered with uh, Faith Lutheran, and we partnered with The Avenue and, and some other churches, and we collectively together thought about how we could reach the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we all dropped our brand. You know, we dropped our brand because our brand doesn't matter. We have one brand. His name is Jesus. That's it. That's it. You guys know what I'm talking about. He goes on to say in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So millstone, if you go to Israel with us in March, we'll see a huge millstone in Capernaum. Maybe Jesus was pointing at it, but a big uh, cylindrical stone that was attached to a donkey that would walk in a circle and it would grind uh, either the wheat or it would grind the olive, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. You get the picture. Like, this is the gentle, compassionate, tender Jesus. Let me just reread. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if you took this really big 500-pound stone and hung it around his neck and dropped him in Lake Mead. Oh, wait a minute. The water's receding. We've seen people have done that already. <laughs> he says... He says, it sounds straight mob. I'm just telling you, it sounds straight mob. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Like, is, do you think he's punctuating his point here? And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. He's not done. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched for everyone who will be salted with, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let me just wrap up by saying this. Man, this is a, a huge exclamation point. Right? I mean, he's laying out the importance of valuing people, especially those who are the least among us. He establishes that, no, it's not about creating groups where your little clique, your little crew, you think that you're better than everybody else. If you think that, you've got it all wrong. Your little social media group that you've established and you, you throw bombs at everybody else, guess what? You are not acting like a Christian. 
And, he's, and he says, to wrap it up, just in case you're not getting this, it would be better for you to have a big stone hung around your neck and to be dropped in the Sea of Galilee. Or it would be better for you, if, if this is you, to cut your hand off than to continue sinning. Or it would be better for you, if this is you, to pluck your eye, to tear your eye out of your head or to cut your foot off. Now, is Jesus saying that we ought to self-mutilate if we're struggling with sin? No, he's not saying that because tonight we would have footless, handless, <laughs> blind people, right? I mean, that, that's obviously not what he's saying, but he is saying, he's saying this is so grave, this is so serious, I don't want you to miss this point. You have to, a real disciple, a real disciple deals with sin seriously. A real disciple deals with sin seriously. And we're not just talking about the issue of lust. You know, the context of this typically is in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about looking on a woman and lusting. He's not talking about that. He's talking about mishandling people. He's talking about mishandling people. He's talking about misguiding people. He's talking about laying down an example that diverts people away from the Lord or somehow damages their relationship with God to, to stumble. Scandalon is the word. It means to place them in a trap. It means to divert them from the path. It means, them to, it means for them to fall on their face. And Jesus is saying, it would be better for you if you're in this place and you're doing these things to other people because the way you treat other people matters. Like as a Christian, you can't just be a bully. You can't just boss people around. You can't, you can't just be a bull in a china shop. You, can, you can't just keep people under your thumb and manipulate people just to get people to do what you want them to do. You don't have the freedom to do that. You can't act in this way where you've created hierarchies in the church and you think that you sit on the top because the young believer is going to look at that and they're going to be so confused about what it means to be a Christian. And you guys know that, that that is happening in churches today, right? This very thing that we're talking about is sometimes how churches are shaped. And the world stands back and is like, man, I, I don't know much about Christianity, but I thought it would be different than that. I didn't think it was going to be like that. I didn't think that you would have these leaders who are honored and, and vetter, venerated and worshipped and, and treated like celebrities, you know, who just use their authority and power to push down the voiceless and the people who can't represent themselves. And Jesus says, that is the place that you don't want to be because how you treat other people matters. And I think, man, what a good thing. As we wrap this up tonight, what a good thing for us to be reminded of, like, because we bring, uh, well, I'm not going to get to the end of these verses, and they're super confusing anyway, and, you know, there's like 15 different ways to interpret the final two verses of this chapter. We'll leave that for another time. But we bring the kingdom of heaven into the world around us. We bring the kingdom of heaven into the world around us. I bring the kingdom of heaven onto our team. I bring the kingdom of heaven to this congregation Coach Choi brings the kingdom of heaven to the athletics in our school. Or maybe, you know, you serve in some capacity, you know, in a hotel or you're a business owner. People are looking at our lives and they're coming to conclusions about who God is and how he operates. And what he's simply saying is this, it matters. It matters. It matters in the home. It matters how we treat our kids. It matters 
matters how we treat our husband or how we treat our wife. It matters because what's at stake is someone's potential eternal destiny. It's some young believer, right, who's just got on fire for Christ and is all excited about their faith. And then all of a sudden, some yahoo Christian comes in and blows up their whole view of what it means to be a Christian. And, and this is what Jesus is saying. That's not going to happen. That's not how real disciples operate. Because that's not what you've learned from me. You've learned grace and truth and love and care to the extent where I would take a little child unto myself. This is how you are called to treat one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Help us. God, we, we so often get it wrong in our relationships. And so please, we pray. Please, we pray. Help us to heed the word. Help us to heed the word. Help us to take the warning. Help us to align ourselves to kingdom truth. Help us to be less self-centered. Help us not to be coveting what you're doing in someone else's life to the point where we're filled with jealousy and envy. Oh, God, help us to be satisfied with our Savior and to be filled with your love and to be ambassadors of the gospel that our lives, that our lives would be attractive to the unbeliever because they would see you living in and through us. Tonight, as our eyes are closed, as our heads are bowed, just want to tonight remind you, and maybe you've heard this before, and so it is a reminder, maybe this is for the very first time, God loves you. He loves you. And he is good. And Jesus said to his disciples that he would be betrayed, and he would be crucified, he would be resurrected, and, and he did that. His whole life culminated in the sacrifice that he made on the cross for you because you matter. And maybe tonight you are the one who feels voiceless. And you, you from a, the perspective of society, you feel like you are on the lowest rung. I want to tell you today he sees you and he values you because you are made in the image of God and because he died on the cross for you. And maybe tonight you are... You perceive yourself to be on the top of the scale in society. I want to tell you today, you are as in much need of the Savior as everybody else. And today he loves you. And, and maybe, maybe in all of your searching and all of your success, all you have found is emptiness and sorrow. He's present tonight to fill the need in your life and to fill your heart with joy. So this evening, if you need to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ to believe in the sacrifice that he made, to believe in his resurrection from the dead, to start your journey with God, we want to give you an opportunity to take that step of faith and want to 
ask you tonight, if this is you, would you just simply raise your hand? You would say by the raising of your hand that you need God in your life and you want to trust in Christ. Thank you so much for raising your hand. That's awesome. Anybody else? I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you for raising your hand. Maybe tonight as a Christian, you know there's been ways of thinking or ways of living that have not been aligned with the kingdom. And, and tonight, you know, you're going to heed the warning and make some changes in your life. I want to pray for you too. Would you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. I see your hands. It's awesome. Thank you. I see your hands. You can put your hands down. And Father, thank you that, God, you've faithfully spoken to us tonight and pray that you would really bless these, some making a decision to follow you for the very first time, some just realigning their lives, taking the warning seriously, taking the teaching and the instruction of your son seriously. I pray tonight that you would Bless them as well. Right where you're sitting tonight, I want to lead all of you in a very simple prayer and just going to ask you to, to follow me in this prayer tonight. Like I said, if you're putting your faith in Christ for the first time, this is, this is an opportunity for you to confess your sin to God and then to confess your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for your sins and through faith in him, receiving God's forgiveness and Whatever the case may be tonight, just um, want to encourage you to follow me in this simple prayer. And God, thank you for tonight. Tonight I'm choosing to believe and I'm choosing to follow Christ, confessing my sin to you and receiving through faith your forgiveness, your love, and your grace. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.